Um, so this week was quite an exciting week. Um, as many of you know, uh, Jinha um, got commissioned last last Sabbath, and that was that was really an exciting moment for our family. And so, for those of you who are regular and came and supported uh, supported us, we just want to say thank you very much. For those of you who are regular and didn't come to support us, we still love you. Um, as you can tell. Um, I'm going to be preaching about a kind of a unique topic today, and the reality is that um, I don't always live out the principles of avoiding slothfulness in my own life. Um, there are intermittent moments uh, where I catch man flu throughout the week, every week, and so uh, this sermon is more from the perspective of someone who's convicted as opposed to someone who has arrived at um, the ultimate holy productivity um, that I think... Um, one can uh, arrive at. And so, basically, um, I just want to share some convictions that, um, yeah, some things that I've come across in Scripture, and I thought I'd share that with you today. So today, we're going to be talking about the subtle sin of slothfulness. And uh, some say that sloth is the reason behind, or the reason why, 50% of heart attack victims um, who initially intend to follow the doctor's recommendation for diet and exercise don't. Uh, some people also say that um, sloth is the reason behind all of the failed New Year's resolutions. And I'm curious, how many of you made New Year's resolutions in January? How many of you are still keeping your New Year's resolutions? All right. How many of you don't want to raise your hands right now? <laughs> so Jinha and I made a New Year's resolution back in January, and we restarted that resolution last night as I was writing this part of the sermon. <laughs> so Jinha and I, uh, we bought a journal for couples, and basically the journal prompts uh, entries for each day of the year. And so, for example, January 1 went like this, love is fill in the blank. And so each couple kind of fills in uh, what they think love is. And so as I was flicking through the different entries, uh, the entries are all filled up from January 1 to January 7th, so we lasted one week. <laughs> but we're going we're gonna to pick that uh, resolution back up, and we're, we've started again last night. So historically, the church has really wrestled with this idea of sloth and laziness. And back in the 4th century, there was a monk by the name of Evagrius, and what he did was he noticed there were two sins that he observed amongst the people around him. One was the sin of asadia, and that's something that he kind of coined that word, asadia. And that's basically just uh, spiritual apathy. The second sin that he saw was something called tristitia, which is um, a state of melancholy or a state of continual state of sadness. Um, one might even say it's, uh, it could be seen as depression. Well, you fast forward 200 years into the 6th century, and Pope Gregory I takes those two sins and he combines them under the name sloth. And here's where the complication comes. Back then, sloth was seen as a sin or slothfulness was seen as a result of one's personal sin. And so it doesn't really take into account the effects that trauma has on, a, on someone's life. It doesn't take into effect the different things that happen through life stages. Um, there was no diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders, right? And so they saw depression and saw, well, that is sin. And you run into complications if you do that. And so throughout history, the church has really wrestled with this idea of sloth. 
So despite the challenge of really pinpointing and defining sloth, uh, I want to share a few Bible passages with you. And uh, the Bible approaches this concept of sloth very broadly. Um, But I think there's some really good insights into understanding laziness and even hopefully overcoming laziness. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like to invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 25. And we're going to read verses 14 to 30. Matthew chapter 25, uh, verses 14 to 30. I'm just going to narrate the story, and I'll invite you to read through Scripture um, as I narrate. For those of you who are joining us online, I'd also like to invite you to open your Bibles with us as we go through the story. The parable we're going to be covering is the parable of talents. And uh, the story kind of highlights laziness, and so... um, I kind of thought this would be an interesting story to go through. Now, the word talent is a measurement of money that was used in the Roman Empire. And in this story, uh, there's a wealthy master who has three slaves, and he divvies his wealth between the three slaves in hopes of um, gaining more wealth. And so the slave's job is to go and invest the master's money properly. And so the story goes that Uh, To the first slave, the master gives five talents. To the second slave, the master gives two talents. And to the third slave, he gives one talent. And the story says that the master kind of portions his wealth out in proportion to the ability of the slave. And so the slave that received five talents um, has lots of capability and abilities. Uh, The slave that received one talent uh, wasn't as capable. And so the story continues on. The master departs for a journey, and he goes off to a far country, and immediately the first slave, who received five talents, doubles his master's uh, wealth, and the second one does the same thing. But the third slave, who received one talent, digs a hole in the ground, buries the talent in the ground, and walks away, does nothing. Lots of time passes, The master returns, and he wants to settle his accounts with his slaves. And so the first slave comes and says, Master, you gave me five talents. I'm giving you ten. The second slave goes, Master, I have also doubled your initial um, investment. And the the third slave comes and says, Master, and here's what he says. And if you have your Bibles, turn to verse 24. The third slave says, Master... I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But the master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You perceive that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. You ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. And in verse 30, the master punishes the slave. This parable is kind of a metaphor um, of the natural talents that God bestows upon each of us. It shows what God the master expects from us, the slaves. Uh, When it comes to how we live our lives, how we go about God's business, how we fulfill God's mission and His will. Now, initially, as I think about the story, it portrays the master as someone who's a little bit unreasonable, and here's why. Uh, firstly, the rebuke and the punishment towards the slave 
seems a little bit extreme concerning the outcome of the finances um, compared to the initial investment that the master made. Like, the slave didn't really lose that much money, or he didn't lose any money. Secondly, the master gave the slave one talent compared to what the other slaves received, whether it was two or five. And so the master knew this slave is not going to do as much, so why would he expect anything less? The slave received one, and he's like, look, I'm not as capable as a person that received five. I've brought one back to you. Seems to make, uh, it seems like it would make sense. Thirdly, the, sle- the slave seemed to uh, have made an accurate character assessment of the master. He thinks the master's unfair, I'm afraid of him, and what he thinks could happen does happen to him. He gets punished. But I'd like you to consider a few things about the master. Well, there are four things that I'd like you to consider about the master. First, one talent in the Roman Empire was 32.3 kilograms worth of money. That's, that's a lot of money. If you were to convert that into U.S. currency, that's roughly around $250,000. Now, the master... What this says is that the master actually trusted in the slave's ability. He wasn't saying, you're, I don't think you're going to do as good as the five, so I don't think you're going to do anything. What he's saying is, I'm giving you a ton of money. I believe in you. Ben Carson says, if you have a normal working brain, you shouldn't be worried about what you can't accomplish. Now, never mind that Ben Carson just endorsed Donald Trump. I still think he's a an authority on neuroscience. So anyway, good quote. I'm not going to comment on the other part. Second point, the master gives the other slaves more responsibilities after a faithful return is given back to him. In other words, the master wants the slaves to become masters themselves. So when the slave that brought back four and ten bring their return, he says, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful with a few things, I'm going to make you a master of many. Enter into my joy. And he rewards them. He wants the slaves to become masters. Third thing to consider about the master. The master didn't give each slave more than they could handle. In other words, he gives them kind of a safety net. He doesn't give the one that has capability of one talent, ten talents. He's saying, listen, I'm going to give you what you can handle. Here's what you can handle. Fourth thing to consider, it wasn't about returning a specific amount that was considered success. For example, the slave that returned four was still considered faithful, even though the slave before him returned ten. And so the master wasn't concerned about how much money can you make me. The master is concerned about, are you being faithful with what I have given you? So success in the eyes of the master was not determined by specific outcome, rather faithfulness to the task. And so here comes the master, and he faces this wicked, lazy servant. And there are several really important reasons why he's so upset. I'm going to list them for you. There are five of them. One, the master was away for a very long time, and money depreciates in value. And so when you think about investment, it's not about dollar amount. It's also about opportunity costs, right? It's about what could you have done with your money had you done something else. And so... The master recognizes the slave could have chucked the money into a bank account or into a savings account. That savings account would have accrued interest, and then he would have made money. In Australia right now, if you put $250,000 into a savings account, depending on which bank you go through, 
you can accrue between six to $7,000 per annum. That's pretty significant. If you deposit that uh, $250,000 in an American bank account, which the interest is like 0.05%, he would have accrued like a dollar in a year. So that's probably, it's probably a little bit different. But The lesson here is that when you're stagnant, you're at a loss. When you're stagnant, you're at a loss. So the master looks at what the slave does, and he says, you lazy servant. Secondly, the slave could have consulted with the other slaves. Clearly, that slave needed help, but he chooses not to ask for any, any assistance. There's a passage here in Proverbs chapter 26, verse 16. It says, The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. Third reason why the master calls the slave wicked and, and, uh, and, a, and lazy the slave didn't want the master to benefit from his own hard work. And so he chooses not to work. Now, here's the challenge of it all. The slave received the money. In other words, he took the position of being the master's steward. So if he didn't want the responsibility of being a steward, he shouldn't have accepted the money. So here's the slave. He likes the position of being that slave. But he doesn't want the responsibility of making the master money. He doesn't want to work. And so, this slave gives half-hearted service. Here's another proverb, chapter 26, verse 15. It says, The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it back to his mouth. In other words, oh, I'm so hungry. Uh, Never mind, I can't be bothered. He just kind of leaves his hand in the dish of food. The slave slave lives by this just good enough motto. And I wonder, do we do the same thing in our lives today? Do we say to God, God, I'll give you 50% commitment. God, I'll keep five of your commandments half of the time. You know, in some really important parts of our lives, statistically, there's no difference between the Christian and the non-Christian. When it comes to premarital relations, when it comes to divorce rates, We're exactly the same as those who are not in the church. And so when it comes to this parable, the master says, I am looking for full commitment, faithfulness to the task at hand. There's a fourth reason why the master sees the slave as unfaithful. Because the slave was afraid he might fail, he never tries to succeed. The slave wants to be safe, living in his comfort zone. Now, at first, this seems understandable. It's a very human need to want safety and security and to be afraid of risk. But there are some passages in the Bible that condemn a certain aspect of this desire for safety and security. Notice what it says, Proverbs chapter 26, verse 13. The sluggard says, There's a lion in the road. There's a lion in the streets. Now, obviously... This text by itself is like, okay, well, that's a good thing. Don't go out there. But the implication here in Proverbs is that the person shouting this doesn't actually know if the lion's out there. He's just afraid there could be a lion out there. So I'm not going to go through with what I need to get done today because of the potential danger out there. Here's another proverb, chapter 21, verse 25. The desire of the sluggard kills him for his hands refuse to labor. Sloth is the desire for ease. It refuses sacrifice. It doesn't like adversity. 
when it comes to circumstances that challenge and refine the character, sloth is the thing that kind of fights that thing to get you to actually push forward. It recoils from circumstances. This slave disregards the safety that's provided by the master. $250,000 is a lot to experiment with. In other words, you can make a lot of mistakes with $250,000, but the slave kind of rejects that safety net and says, no, I don't even want to try. And here's the spiritual lesson. You and I, we are born in adversity. Like We live in a sinful world, and life is difficult. That's the reality. And at the same time, God gives us provision. For example, He gives us the Holy Spirit to lead, guide, teach us, to give us truth. He gives us angels that can implement His, his uh, divine providence in our lives. He gives us the sacrifice of Jesus. See, all this is given for us to rise above challenges. And God also gives us grace for the moments where we are not able to rise above challenges. And so grace is supposed to take out any reason for us not to try. Grace is supposed to take out any reason that we can think of not to try. To quit, not try, is considered slothfulness because the master provides a way to succeed and experience joy and the slave rejects that gift. I'm curious, and just think through this. You don't have to raise your hand or respond. But how many of your personal goals would you attempt if you weren't afraid of failure? In other words, if failure weren't in the equation of your personal goals, your spiritual goals of what you want to accomplish in life, how much would you actually try? Micah and I have been going to the Coburg Leisure Center um, each week. And at the Leisure Center, there are these different pools. Uh, there, there are two different kiddie pools. One is about uh, one foot deep, and kids can kind of run around, and it sprinkles water around. The second pool is about a half a meter deep, and it goes all the way to almost a full meter deep. And the first time I took Micah into the full pool, or into the pool that's almost a meter high, um, he was really uncomfortable and really afraid because he's not used to being immersed by anything. And so that sensation of water being around him, he was just kind of like, oh, I don't like this. Well, the second time I took him to the leisure center, I hop into the big kiddie pool, and I'm expecting Micah to climb down the ladder because that's what normal kids who are afraid of the water do. And as I turn around, I see Micah in midair. And in his face, like, there's this look of sheer joy. And he's like, Wah! Now, Micah doesn't know how to swim. And he doesn't know how to hold his breath underwater. And so you would imagine what happened next. <laughs> and so I went and I rescued him. And it kind of made me think as I was putting the sermon together, Jesus says, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, you need to become like a little child. And there's a certain fearlessness about children that are willing to try new things. If you don't baby-proof your house, you will find out just how much your, your child will explore the world. Um, and so fear has this effect of, 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 of crippling what we're willing to try. Now, on the opposite side of that, while fear can lead to a lack of effort and minimal activity... Fear can also motivate overactivity or the wrong kind of activity, um, which is still considered laziness. So Proverbs chapter 12, verse 11. Whoever works his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows worthless pursuits lacks sense. 
So diligence is about doing the right thing at the right time. And slothfulness or laziness is about doing the wrong activity at the wrong time. In other words, you can be busy and lazy at the same time, according to Scripture. Because busyness replaces the activity that we actually should be focusing on. You'd be amazed at how clean my house gets when I don't want to do something. You'd be amazed at the musical inspiration that comes to me where I'm like, I've got to write a sermon. I'm like, God, I just want to worship you with this song. I pull out the guitar. I'm like, well, what am I doing here? Like, I need to preach tomorrow. <laughs> There's a fifth reason why the master calls the servant not only lazy, but wicked. You see, the slave wants fairness. And in some sense, slothfulness is fair and it seeks fairness. This is what I mean. The slave has an inaccurate view of his master. He's afraid of his master because he feels the master is unfair. And so here's what he does. He then allows himself to rationalize his own irresponsibility and unfaithfulness as a response to his perception of his master's unfaithfulness. The point is that fairness is not righteousness. Let me try and give another example, or a example. What would happen to us if God were fair? When it comes to all the evil and all the sin that we've done, what happens if God repaid that to us in full? When someone wrongs us, the righteous thing to do isn't to repay that wrong with wrath. It's to forgive that individual. And so the master sees through the reasoning given by the slave and sees he's just looking for an excuse to be lazy. And so he calls him lazy and wicked because he sees the condition of his heart. So there are four definitions of slothfulness, just summarizing the story. Number one, it's an unwillingness to learn from others. Two, it's half-hearted commitment and half-hearted service. Three, it's a fear of failure leading to a lack of motivation or lots of motivation in areas of life not pertaining to the task at hand. And number four, an unrealistic desire for an ease of life, unrealistic fairness. I want to share a couple passages with you uh, that help me with these four challenges. And I don't know if you can relate to these four challenges. They really resonate with me. The first passage is Hebrews chapter 6, verses 11 and 12. It says, And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And there are two principles that I want to pull from this passage that I believe helps with this challenge of slothfulness. One, practice hope, and that's in the red. Two, in the purple, is to follow the example of those who through faith and patience have experienced the promises of God. In other words, practicing hope means expect goodness to happen. There's a statistic, you can live seven days without uh, seven days without food, three days without water, but not a moment without hope. If you can turn in your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5, it further explores how to develop hope. And I don't know if you've ever been in that place where you just think, there's a really difficult project in front of me, and I want to be motivated for it, but I just don't have that inspiration. And the question is, where does inspiration come from? If that's what motivates hard work, where does the inspiration for that hard work come from? And Romans chapter 5, verses 1 to 5 kind of 
Paul explores this idea. And we're actually, we're more going to be looking uh, from verse, um, well, I'll just, I'll narrate the, the verse here. So Paul talks about how it's really important to connect with Christ. And in verse 2, it says, We exult in hope of the glory of God. And Paul says, there is a way that you can experience hope. And the question is, Paul, how does one do this? Verse 3. Not only this, we also exult in our tribulations. Continues on, he says, tribulations brings about perseverance. Perseverance, character, character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. So what Paul is saying is, if you want inspiration, you actually have to work for it. Experience tribulation, push, toward, push past that barrier where that barrier is saying, don't get up, don't work, sleep a little bit longer, have a little bit more fun. It's breaking through that barrier and saying, I'm going to experience difficulty and discomfort right now. And what happens is that develops something called perseverance, or uh, in the modern day we might call it grit. And what happens is you practice grit long enough and it becomes a part of who you are. It develops habits, it develops character, and you start seeing differences in what you're actually doing and you see differences in your own life. And that brings about the hope of, hey, if I could do this here in my life, I bet you this would work in another part of my life. And so it's kind of counterintuitive because we think inspiration motivates work. But in this passage it says work motivates inspiration. There are so many times where I've worked on a project and as I'm working through it, I'm actually motivated to work harder because I'm kind of excited about what's happening. I'm like, hey, this could potentially be a cool, good thing. And that motivates me to try harder and try harder. And so many times at that moment when you feel, I just need inspiration, it's the best time to start your project right then and there. The context of this hope, if you read the end of chapter 4 of Romans, is the resurrection of Christ, or death and resurrection of Christ. And there's a passage here in Romans chapter 8, verse 32. And I think this is just a great Bible promise of hope. Here's what it says. He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So, God gave Jesus as a sacrifice, and that sacrifice promises eternal life. So the author is saying, surely everything else in between that you could possibly want in your life, God wants to give you. If he gave you Jesus, why would he not want to give you that goal, that desire that you have in your heart? Now, there are moments where God may not always give you what you want, but the point is he wants to. And one day, he will get to. So in the meantime, practice hope. Live like you expect goodness to happen. And for some, it will happen. And for others, it won't happen this side of eternity. But one day, goodness will prevail. And hope is what gets us to the other side of eternity. So don't give up. The second part of that advice in Romans chapter 6 is seek the community of believers who have experienced the promises of God in their own lives, who can uh, help motivate you to say, hey, I've gone through that exact same thing. Keep pushing forward. I remember, um, you know, Mike, not I remember. This is going through it right now. Mike is going through his terrible twos right now. And there are moments where I'm kind of like, 
discipline, does, any range of discipline does not work. Uh, not disciplining does not work. I've just, what do I do? I sell them to the circus. Like, I, I don't know what to do, right? And uh, there's, uh, there's a man by the name of Darren Croft. He works for the conference. He has six children. Six! I've got one. <laughs> and I'm struggling already. And Darren comes up to me, and, well, I, I went up to Darren, and I was like, hey, so how did you discipline your kids? Because they actually seem, like, pretty good, and we're in public settings, and all six of his kids, like, they're, they behave themselves pretty well. And he says, you know, Roy, uh, when, I was, when I was having kids, and, and now then the church came to me, and he just kind of put his hand on my shoulder, and he just said, just be consistent, keep pushing forward, it's going to be okay. Just keep pushing forward, it's going to be okay. He didn't even give me any practical advice, but it actually felt really good. I was like, all right, I'll just keep pushing forward. This is going to work out. It's going to be okay. And he was just saying, you know, my first son was really challenging. And so don't worry, it'll work itself out. And that was just very, very encouraging. And I, I don't think there's anything else practically that I can um, say be, uh, when it comes to that verse, but just surround yourself with people who have experienced the promises of God. So today, I want to invite you to four things. should have made the font a little bit bigger. (laughs) Number one, be open to learning from one another. Two, commit in your heart to God. Say to him, God, I want to be committed to you. Please get me there. Three, practice safety in Christ. Spend time thinking about grace and how much God cares for you. And four, in that, uh, that safety, face the adversity in your life. And may you experience the righteousness that God wants for you. May God bless you as you fight slothfulness.